Welcome to the NBA Trades Podcast. I'm your host, Raphael, and today I have a really special guest. It is, you know, one of my good buddies, uh, Christian Waterman. He's starting an agency, Waterman Sport Management, which he, he just started recently. And Chris, you you are on to something really special. So Chris, how are you doing today? Doing great, man. Great to hear. Uh, so tell me a little bit about Waterman Sport Management. So you started this, you know, it, it's in the, the early stages. Uh, what made you want to go down this path? Uh, it goes back to childhood, to be honest with you. Uh, I was a, the weird kid who watched real sports as, as, a, as a preteen. Uh, so I saw this segment on Drew Rosenhouse and just watching him you know, quote-unquote, wheel and deal and slice and dice and post and toast uh, in, the, in the back channels of sport. Um, that was a, a world that, um, you know, most young people still are struggling to see uh, in terms of what is sport management and who who are, you know, controlling the, the reins of this multi-billion dollar global industry. Um, so, so watching him in that moment, I was, that was something I was really able to sink my teeth into it, like a career prospect. And I was at 13, and then, you know, over the years, my high school, the high school sport management, that prepared me uh, going to UMass, the arguably the top sport management program. And it was just, I feel like, divine timing for me to just lock in. So it's a great time for me to just set me out. And, you know, the whole vision is how can we, leverage sport in terms of all the activism that's going on, not from just athletes, but the, the sporting enterprise as a whole is just so, um, I mean, you, you you see what's going on. It's just a really remarkable time for, for the, the ability uh, of sport to, to move the chain, uh, so to speak. Most definitely. I think, like, you hit on a lot of big points that... To, that right now is the time and and there's a lot going on <laughs> especially in the news just seeing um, so you know one of the the interesting things I did in sort of researching your website and, and trying to get a look you are running uh, in the 45th annual Honolulu Marathon in support of the Allison Whitney Foundation um, how did that come together and, and what inspired you and also as the second question what how is the training going so far? Because I know that training for running is, is, is definitely hard. <laughs> okay, I'll start in reverse. Uh, tr- training's going well. Like This was something that also happened upon at the top of this year. So I had the privilege of being on the road to December throughout the course of the year as opposed to like, I feel like some people end up in a situation where they decide to run a marathon like, six weeks before or like a week before and, and to all you you runners out there don't do that you know what I mean you're putting that or, or aspiring runners you're definitely putting your, your and just run a marathon you know 26.2 miles is no joke uh, always loved sport as a child you know basketball did you know my first love but I never was really an athlete growing up I was always a big kid uh, I was about thousand people, you know what I'm saying? That was a spot where I could be. And, you know, I was able to, to really make that into something and lose all of this weight. 
achievement is not just to cut the weight, you know what I'm saying? I think it's easier when you cut weight just to work out and you work it off, but I've been able to continue uh, the, the, all of these years that, you know, around the same weight, like 170, 180, and running a marathon is just like saying, you know, so put, putting a stamp on that, like, you know, I was able to really complete a transformation and, you know, achieve one of the, you know, the really, you know what I'm saying? It's like one of the greatest feats for like a, the, the, a non pro athlete to be able to say that you ran in a marathon and completed a marathon. Like that's, you know, that's an amazing thing. So that's definitely, um, an inspiration for me and I hope my story can be an inspiration to other people who you know are struggling with weight loss or just struggling you know trying to you know push themselves to the higher heights all right so regarding the Allison Whitney Foundation uh, when I when I happened upon Honolulu that was because I missed the boat for New York which is in November so I'm like oh Honolulu December this is perfect uh, so we're gonna go down there do uh, a two-on-one honeymoon and then I'm going to run in the marathon. Uh, Alice and Whitney Foundation is a small charity located in Upper New York and it was a no-brainer to me because the other few charities that I could run for were like much larger institutions and I'm like, okay, Alice and Whitney is, is local, uh, it's run you know, exclusively by volunteers and it's raising funds for young adults who are diagnosed with cancer, you know, unexpectedly, and just raising awareness for, for rare cancers. You know, Allison, she passed away in 2011 from a small cell cervical cancer. It was something that snuck up on her, and it's something that happens to thousands of people. And the unfortunate component about rare cancers is that there's, you know, doctors oftentimes are, conf you know, confounded, like they have you know, minimal to no information about some of these cancers. And when you say that you're raising money or, or, or awareness for further research, that actually, you know, now that I'm a little more versed on this world, it's like that actually does mean a difference. You know, the, the research turns into potential treatment, right? If, if we get something and then there's a treasure trove of information that we can reach to, then that, you know, exponentially increases, you know, our chance of, of beating that disease. But if there's no energy that's been put into, you know, trying to crack this thing down, then that really, you know, hurts, you know, families. So I'm, I'm happy to be running for uh, the, the AWF squad, uh, really looking to make you know, a, a strong impact both locally and on the national level as well. Wow, it's great to hear. Ho hopefully it all goes well. Hopefully the training goes well as you continue on your journey. That's really, um, really cool and really commendable. So, um, I guess switching gears, uh, we, <laughs> we just started trying to go from it like that, but, um, you know, well, this I, is got, I got one for you. I think okay. the, the reason or the beautiful thing, like what I'm trying to do with the agency in terms of fusing like philanthropy and humanitarianism with sport, I feel like me running the marathon for Allison Whitney Foundation is a, a leadership by example, right? It's setting out that fusion between, you know, sport and social consciousness. 
and it'll be a, a, a perfect beginning point for the world to see what we'll be doing moving forward as an agency. So when we start sitting down with families, we will have a portfolio of activity that we have done. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, that definitely makes sense because I, they both intersect, especially like what you're doing with that, that it, you know, that they intersect, you know, running but also you're doing it for a cause and also at the same time you know it's something important like you said like doctors really need help trying to find that research to cure something like that which is sort of you know it's a rare form of cancer so it it definitely makes sense you know now and also in the long run run in terms of you know what your goals are for the future of um of your agency so it's definitely like a really really cool idea um so the alley so now let's switch gears to talk about one of the most active and philanthropic uh, athletes of uh, all time to be honest dot 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 uh carmelo anthony right you know one of the, the biggest trades of the nba summer and i think you know like you hit on a really good point that he's really just he's really uh, uh, in an underrated way I think a lot of people don't recognize it because of sort of this weird focus on what he does on the court and and obviously he plays for the Knicks so it's the biggest franchise or biggest uh, media market in the world and so there's always going to be a focus on what he's doing on the court and the fact that they're losing also heightens that but looking at what he does off the court he does do a lot um you know, it's actually funny. I was just watching this little, little mini documentary on Vice Sports um, about WNBA players and how they have to get uh, second jobs, which is usually playing overseas where they get paid more than they do in the WNBA. And Carmelo was an executive producer. So, huh. um, yeah, so Carmelo definitely does a lot. And it was a really good documentary. It was really quick, 14, 15 minutes. Um, and it really featured a lot of interesting stuff. Simone Augustus from uh, the Minnesota Lynx is one of the is the featured athlete sort of uh you know that that they follow around in the story but anyway getting back to carmelo so he got traded uh i guess in a lot of ways for knicks fans like some people are like finally uh because uh melodrama has taken over new york for the past i'd say six or seven months pretty much uh mid-season while phil jackson uh was running the team and the knicks were falling apart uh he was trying every possible way to force carmelo anthony out and you know criticizing him publicly criticizing him privately saying things about him being a selfish player and you know the Knicks losing it sort of led to the idea that Carmelo was a goner there was no way he he was going to be able to come back to the Knicks even after Phil was uh, and the Knicks uh, mutually agreed to part ways there was still this feeling that Carmelo was going to get traded and it happened uh, after numerous rumors of him going to the Houston Rockets um, and it just never working out because the Knicks didn't want to take on Ryan Anderson's uh, three-year, $60 million contract, the Knicks finally pulled the trigger. And it sort of came out of nowhere. Uh, Oklahoma City Thunder, they've built a really nice little nucleus with Russell Westbrook and adding Paul George in a trade with the Indiana Pacers this summer. And so now they have a really nice core adding Carmelo to their roster. So looking at it, I guess we'll start with the Knicks because that'd probably be the, you know, the, I guess the, we'll start with the sadness because this is sort of the rebuilding period of the Knicks. What did you think about the trade? Uh, looking back on Carmelo's entire time with the Knicks 
and it's sort of just not working out. And looking at the future of where this team can go with Chris Stapps Porzingis leading their roster right now. Well, given the late date, I actually was thinking that it was going to work out. I thought that we would be seeing Melo in training camp and Melo in preseason and Melo as the as the veteran within this uh, new Knicks roster, even though when the uh, the new president wrote the blog post a couple weeks back, he, did, he, he mentioned a lot of people, uh, the young point guard, Hernan Gomez, but he didn't mention Melo, so that was pretty um, telling of the, the front office's vision for the future. Uh, but nothing was happening and even Kyrie got traded and we're just like okay well if the Rockets aren't gonna go through then I guess they're gonna just go with Melo and then see what happens but we got the shocker uh, I can I remember where I was when it happened it was almost like you know I don't know it was just it was just a thing where we're, we're getting this information you know Melo had put you know, so much energy into New York and New York so much energy uh, into Melo, which we definitely can feel feel the emotions bleeding through in his, you know, personal letter that he penned to the city. Uh, the Thunder catapulted uh, throughout the Western Conference with just the, the, the flick of this trade. I think it, it changes um, their trajectory, you know, the, the, the compound to go from you know, Russell shouldering the team on his back to adding a, a world-class player then to adding another world-class player is amazing. You know, just, you know, like to, to use the phrase again, world-class uh, management by the Thunder front office. I think both teams benefit from the trade because like I said the, the Knicks the Knicks closed the door on Melo for, for like you said pretty much throughout the summer it was a foregone conclusion that he was going to move so that it didn't drag into the season was healthy and now both teams can sort of walk on into their future you know Cantor and Porzingis have a you know there's a nice Twin Towers opportunity. Uh, the, the floor is clear for for young Frank to really start running the show and, and getting his his sea legs. Uh, so so I I like it. I like the deal. Uh, yeah, I and I think that's sort of the interesting part of this trade is is what it really is a a, a, um, a restart or a refresh for the Knicks because they have so many young guys that, you know, like you had mentioned um, uh, Steve Mills' uh, <laughs> letter that he wrote and, and all the promotional material the Knicks didn't include Carmelo in, which sort of was an indicator of, of what they thought of where he was going to be by the time that training camp started and by the time the season started. And... It's really tough. I think, you know, Canner and McDermott, it's sort of like what... I mean, you're trading Carmelo, who's not a, a very good defender, to be honest. And at this point in his age, he's, you know, 33. And he's not going to get better defensively. But then you trade him for two guys who are not very good defensively. I think more so this trade, what his benefit is, 
is that Canner has one year on his contract with a player option, which he probably is likely to accept. And so he'll be there past this year um, in 1819. And Doug McDermott is a free agent after this season. Um, ah. Yeah, so he will be a he'll be a restricted free agent. He's, it's the end of his rookie contract. So the Knicks sort of are setting themselves up to pro- possibly, you know, be uh, competitive in free agency in the future. It's just that they've made so many mismanagement uh, uh, missteps from previous decisions this summer and previous years that you have to wonder if they'll be able to even have that prime cap space to go after someone who probably they're looking would have to be a better fit with Porzingis. Um, because signing Joe Kim Noah to a four-year, $72 million contract uh, last summer was very short-sighted and also was just not a good signing because he didn't play well this year. And I don't think anyone would project him to get better based off of the serious decline he's gone uh, under the past few years of his career. And I think also giving Tim Hardaway Jr. too, you know, a lot of people were confused about that. While there's a little bit more hope because Tim Hardaway's a lot younger and he's relatively healthy, he's never had a serious injury in his uh, career, there's still, you know, questions of whether that whole situation will work out or if he's worth what they offered him, which was vastly more than what the team that he was originally on, Atlanta, was planning to offer him um, in restricted free agency. And the Knicks sort of just blew every competing team out of the way with, uh, or out of the water with uh, offer. I think it was seventy-three million dollars, or I might be a little bit off on it. But it, you know, the Knicks are in a in a precarious position because uh, probably for the first time they do have most of their draft picks intact. They actually have a young core of like a few guys that you know you want to see if they can build around that group. But at the same time, they're sort of a very thin team have a lot of centers, too many centers, um, and all of them sort of are good at specifically one or two things, which is usually offensive rebounding. Um, Ennis Canner was number one in offensive rebound percentage last year. Um, he's been in the top ten the past three years. Joe Kim Noah is a very good offensive rebounder. Kylo Quinn is a very good offensive rebounder. Willie Hernan Gomez, too, and so they have guys who sort of uh, intersect positionally, but also intersect in terms of their skill set. None of them are three-point shooters outside of Porzingis, who might see some time, but with four centers who, you know, are getting paid like they should be playing in the NBA, it'll be hard to see Porzingis playing a lot at center this upcoming season unless there's a trade made. So it's going to be really complicated. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, looking back on Carmelo for you, you know, he had a run... Uh, from 2000, I think he got traded in the summer of, or not in the summer, uh, at, near the deadline of 2011. And, you know, he was paired with Amari Stoudemire. It never worked out um, because Amari was injured. But also at the same time, the Knicks probably had their most success when Carmelo was on the court without Amari. And, you know, they were never able to build a successful or stable roster around him. Uh, much has been made of how much they've changed around their roster so many times. I think Carmelo... It has played with 70 or 80 players in the past, you know, throughout his Knicks tenure, which, yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, so, I mean, to think about that, that's, like, so crazy to think that, you know, he's had so much instability in the front office and in the coaching staff and in terms of his teammates while he's been sort of the one mainstay 
uh, on the roster. So for him, you know, you can't really blame him all the way. You can blame certain things on him in terms of his style of play. Was it conducive to winning? Uh, did it put the Knicks in the best position to build around him? Probably not, but the Knicks still made a lot of boneheaded mistakes that didn't help their cause either. Um, so that's just sort of my like viewpoint of like seeing it. What did you think about Carmelo's time uh, for these past you know six ish years? High hopes. Uh, lots of high hopes. <laughs> they, they traded a, you know a chunk of the garden uh, to get him here in New York. I thought I thought it was a bad deal uh, to begin with. Uh, Gallo, Wilson Chandler, Moskov, first-rounders. Um, I thought it was a huge price. And in hindsight, if you look at... Uh, if you if you weigh the two deals and the outcome of Melo's tenure, I mean, outside of the fiscal success that the New York Knicks have had, if you just look at, like, pure basketball... So, so, so the Knicks' pure basketball, you know, success, and then... Melo losing, or I should say, spending six years uh, of his career sort of meandering in this world of Nixdom, which was, you know, mired in a lot of times confusion and struggle and, you know, different coaches and just a lot of, like, conflict. Uh, you know, it happened, but maybe it wasn't for the best. You know, maybe. Uh, Obviously, his career would have gone in a different direction. I uh, had the, the Nuggets built around him a bit more. I always had the theory that Allen Iverson going to the Nuggets at that time where Melo was just starting to break out was harmful because AI was still, you know, he still had a dominant energy on him at a time where I felt like Melo's Melo's number two really needed to be uh, a point guard and he had that in Chauncey Billups for a bit and then when it came to uh, New York it translated to a degree but Melo and Amari are both talented forwards who struggled defensively so that that was always an issue and while Melo gets this horrible rap as being a quote-unquote bad defender. Uh, he's he's one of the, you know, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. He's one of the best basketball players, you know, what, maybe what, top 100, maybe in the top 50 all-time. You know, he's the greatest, you know, USA basketball player of all time, you know, by the numbers, leading rebounder, leading scorer. Um, so, the question is not whether or not he's capable of playing great defense. He's capable of it. Do we see it uh, with the consistency that we, you know, herald from, you know, all class defenders? Not necessarily. And I think that has been the issue where, but but his focus is that, you know, he's an amazing scorer, right? And as well, what we're going to be seeing from him moving forward. It was just announced that he's going to be starting at the four uh, with the Thunder. Uh, we're going to see, you know, more of that. Um, let's say like a Chris Webber 
type of energy, right? Someone who's really skilled with the basketball, either in the, the face up or the back down, and able to really be a facilitator with his back to the basket. You know, hitting cutters, um, hitting you know PG open. You know, just really being in a a, a perfect situation for him uh, at this point in his career. Uh, I think he he's been reiterating that uh, the, the whole Thunder team is, is just has this aura of positivity around it right now because really, you know, at all, all, you know, especially in the West, but I was going to say all 29 teams should just be feeling like they have nothing to lose right now. The Warriors are, are perceived to be so far and away better than every other team than if you're in training camp right now, you should just be, you know, putting the pedal to the metal and, and really believing in giving your team and your season the, the best shot. And the Thunder are one of a handful of teams that really could look themselves in the mirror and feel like they honestly have a chance of, of dominating the Warriors um, in a, in a seven-game series. And just a, a few moves really change that landscape it's really a beautiful thing do you think the thunder with the three of them you know three stars who who need the ball to succeed do you think that they will be able to i know a lot of people probably would say like you know as a counter would be carmelo his how he's played in the olympics and how he's been able to you know play off of other players um when he's played with better talent like in the olympics um and, you know, Paul George, too, he's, his ability to, you know, come off screens and hit hit shots, you know, probably would flow well. But, you know, Westbrook, too, he had coming off of a season where he had such a high usage rate because they really didn't have anyone else who can create their own offense. Um, playing with them, probably Oladipo was the second best offensive creator on the team. Um, how do you see the three of them sort of fitting with the ball? Well, I think it's unfair to say, well, just because they have three-star players that need the ball, they're going to struggle. Just like any, you know, new team coming together, I think it's all sort of more more marked with the Heat, where you had LeBron, who is a ball-dominant facilitator, uh, coming into a situation where it was quote-unquote D-Wade's team and they took that entire first year um, to really figure out what was going to happen. You know, Chris Bosh went from being the number one option to, you know, the, the third support and that's something that had Kevin Love's name in trade talks throughout, you know, the vast majority of his Cleveland tenure but it's a, he, he has continued to find his role just like we're going to see Jay Crowder have to figure out and not just Jay Crowder have to figure it out but the Cavaliers and Jay Crowder having to figure out well how does this work Um, you know how do we look with IT at the point as opposed to Kyrie at the point so as you know training camp day one they, they went through June through, through drills and scrimmages and learned more about each other and the coaching staff took plenty of notes and 
came up with new ideas that were based on the Thunder as is, as opposed to Russ as an individual, PG with the Pacers, and then Melo with the Knicks. You know what I mean? And I think that's going to be the key. How quickly uh, can that team gel? Uh, how innovative can the coaching staff be on running sets that allow uh, you know maximization of each player? I mean, it's it's important to see them you know as a big four as as well. You know, not leaving out uh, Stephen Adams and the important role he's going to play as the um yeah it's it's i mean it's it's going to be hard because you know like like you had mentioned the heat previously the it took a while i was interested to see like what they how they're able to will they be able to hit the ground running will they be i mean they probably will the first game um <laughs> but you know it well, i'm interested to see like like how how they're able to make their uh, lack of three point shooting outside of probably Carmelo and interesting to see on on offense. Um, well, I think even within what you just said, right? If one of the Thunder go to plays is Russ attacking a basket, and, and you just said these these two uh, stars are you know the, the supporting cast, and Russ drives that draws the attention of like three to five defenders on any given play, which is, you know, what creates the, the danger uh, with the Warriors where you can't really leave anyone, you know, depending on who's on the floor. And, uh, you can't leave, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you can't leave an all-star, right? So yeah. the, Thunder, the Thunder having, um, you know, this new makeup, it's definitely a beautiful thing in terms of, uh, you know, reshifting the competitive balance of the, in the West um, after KD's departure from the Thunder. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting season. And I think, you know, this trade was sort of a microcosm of the NBA right now. It's sort of crazy. I mean, Carmelo was an all-star. He gets traded. And he joins a list. And when I say a list, a list of all-stars that moved via free agency, trade, you know, whatever have you, they are on a new team wearing a brand new jersey, and that includes Jimmy Butler, Paul George, uh, Isaiah Thomas, Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward, you know, those are just a few to mention, and I think the, the what's really been amazing is seeing all of the player movement, thinking of DeMarcus Cousins getting moved at, at the All-Star break last year, and also how people are talking about the possibility of Anthony Davis, you know, his, when his free agency situation pops up, will the Pelicans be forced to trade him if they can't prove that, they, that they're able to win? And also how that affects DeMarcus, too, with the Pelicans. So there's a lot of player movement. A lot of players want to team up. A lot of players want to play together. We saw Kevin Durant uh, join Golden State last year, get criticized, and then you know make up his own Twitter account this summer and and uh, have, have fun with that. <laughs> but... Um, you know, getting back to it, there's a lot of players who, you know, who are looking to win, trying to cement their legacies as champions, or at least guys who got close to it. And they're leaving situations where if they don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, they're not going to stick around to be the lone star on a bad team or a mediocre team and wait it out. 
I mean, we saw Paul George leave the Pacers after a mediocre season or, or indicate to Indiana that he wanted to go to the Lakers. We saw Carmelo's situation play out. Um, and we saw guys like Jimmy Butler get traded who, after, you know, playing really well on, on some very mediocre teams in Chicago. How much uh, of a, an effect it's had on the league. I definitely think it's, it's made the league more interesting. It's sort of become a hyper, hyper NFL type of, you know, movement type of situation where you're seeing this summer, usually you have like nine or ten months of, of serious activity from, you know, the season, the finals, the playoffs, the draft, and then free agency. But now we're seeing trades in August when people are expecting that to be the one month that people could just chill and not talk about what's going on in the NBA or talk about any player movement. And to see this summer, see... You know, Kyrie get traded and that headline August, and to see right before training camp in September and see Carmelo get traded, um, it's a lot to take. Uh, what do you think about the impact of all of these superstars and all stars moving from team to team, and it's a and the effect it's had on the NBA? I think it's beautiful because look at the the converse of it, right? How, how interesting would it be if we saw the same rosters year after year right that would that would you know limit the growth potential of new stars coming into the league via the draft new new brands um that, that was a, that was a big baller brand shout out <laughs> uh, you know that that's what keeps the league fresh and i think it's it's not something that as contrived as it may seem, I think it's about survival of the fittest, right? If you, um, there's only one ultimately successful team at the end of every season. So if you're one of those 29 who didn't hoist the chip, then you're going to have those really serious internal conversations about how do we improve this team? And those internal conversations lead to external conversations with, other teams who have the same goal so you look at well hey we have these assets and you know not not to speak about human beings as assets you know we have uh, these players who may benefit your team and you know team B says yes we have these players and X draft picks and you know X amount of cash uh, let's make this happen and um, yeah, is it? And I, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. Like, you know, teams want to make the moves that. They, I mean, you're trying to get better. At the end of the day, um, that's a, a really important part. And as teams try and get more competitive, it's going to be harder. I think also, you know, players taking ownership too of their own situations. I think one of the most interesting things I've heard over the past, I guess maybe from media day, you know, yesterday. To see LeBron, you know, I think he got asked by one of the reporters about, you know, his free agency situation looming this upcoming summer. Everyone thinks he's going to the Lakers. And he just sort of said, you know, I always look at free agency as a business. Like, a lot of people, like he said that he was, that he loves it in Cleveland and, and he plans on finishing his career out. But he has to look at it from a business perspective. If Cleveland isn't where he wants it to be then he has to put the, you know, the foot on their neck to make sure that they're going to do what he wants them to do. And that's sort of, 
him using his leverage as the best player in the NBA, the guy who you could put on any team in the league right now, and he turned their fortunes around vastly. And you know, you could t- uh, you could look at almost any team, and there they'd be talking a completely different uh, tone when they add LeBron. And so he's used that power on the court as leverage off the court to command a team like Cleveland to do what he wants them to do. And and rightfully so, you know, I don't blame him for it because um, uh, look at what he's done for the Cavaliers. I mean, he goes to Miami, comes back. Cleveland was terrible without him. And as soon as he comes back, they make the NBA Finals the first year. Then they win a championship the second year. And then in the third year, they make the NBA Finals again. And lose to a team that, you know, won 67 games and has four, you know, Hall of Fame caliber players, four all-stars, you know, four great players. And so he's really changed the fortunes of that franchise. And it would be in his best interest to make sure that Cleveland, you know, sticks to their end of trying to build the best possible team around him so that he can, you know, compete for a championship uh, but but looking past LeBron, he's uh, he's sort of given other players that uh, you know that power empowered other players to realize their value to their respective franchises to do the same thing and say okay you know my free agency is upcoming and you know you're going to have to make a decision either you put the best possible team around me. Or if I can't, if I don't feel like I'm going to win a championship here, or even be close to it, then I do not want to be a part of it. And we saw that with Paul George. You know, he pretty much told the Pacers, you know, his free agency it's coming up, and you know, he's very mum on what would happen. And the Pacers, as a result of him saying that he planned on opting out and leaving the Pacers for the Lakers, that uh, you know that he ended up leaving and going to to getting traded because the Pacers had no other choice but to do that. And so you're seeing more players sort of put the onus and getting traded before their contracts expire so that teams could get some kind of value for them. Um, You're seeing that more often now. Um, What do you think about player empowerment now in the NBA and sort of just them taking the onus in a way that, you know, we haven't seen in professional sports ever, just to be honest? Right, because even, you know... Free agency is something that is only, you know, two generations old, you know, going back to um, Kurt Flood and the MLB. Uh, so what it immediately, you speaking about LeBron and, and PG and then definitely Kyrie situation, just really him, you know, masterfully forcing that issue and getting his result within a few weeks of time. It brings me back to the lockout. Uh, 2011, where that was the last time you saw, you know, the, the NBA labor force really, you know, asserting dominance in mass, and it has led toward, I would say, to a two-way transparency between the players and the teams and, and the league at large, to where Paul George has the agency to have that conversation. The Pacers can say yes, we understand, and you know the, the two parties can move on amicably. Uh, even going back to Melo, Melo said that there's there's no hard feelings between you know he and the Knicks, as it was 
you know, understood on both sides that, you know, the time for, you know, the, the partnership to end was now, you know, so I think we'll, we'll continue to see this trend moving forward where, you know, teams, teams and owners that have so many millions, well, at this point, you know, teams are, are, are worth billions if you look at what the Rockets just, just sold for and what the Clippers uh, were sold for a few years back. Billions of dollars are being invested uh, into these franchises, and every franchise owner intimately understands that your team is only as good as the team that you're putting on the floor. It's not it's not just about how you know cushioning, well cushioned the seats are. You know, people need to you know come see you know premier basketball. So we will continue to see. Teams treat uh, their players better and continue to see players assert more dominance in uh, how uh, the product is displayed. You see that coming through heavily with you know sites like the Player Tribune and Uninterrupted, where uh, athletes are starting to surge past uh, the traditional media structure with the recent protests. Uh, you know the. The, the sports world is basically on its noggin, you know, pop, you know, a guy who's usually stoic is turned into, you know, uh, a critical race theory philosopher, you know, Steve Kerr is pending op-eds. Um, it's, it's a wonderful time for, like I said, that key word of uh, transparency uh, as, as the new trend uh, in sport. And, you know, we definitely owe a lot, you know, in, in current history, uh, to, to Kaepernick for helping to, to shoot through um, some of the flaws and you know his predecessors you know Ali rest in peace and uh, as well as um, you know John Carlos and Tommy Smith like we can't forget I think it was a, a player on the Dolphins I saw in passing you know he while some people were kneeling some people had their arms locked this one player you know had his fist raised you know that that was something that was seen as um it was a singular act when it happened during the 1968 Olympics, but you, now we have hundreds, you know, hundreds of, of you know, multi-millionaires, uh, you know, protesting in solidarity at the same time, you know, so that, that's the key word for, for sport moving forward, which is transparency, just getting, you know, get, getting through, getting through the fuck and playing sport, which is this beautiful global language at, at a high level and using it to bring people together for the common good. True. Yeah, no, I think that's become the biggest thing, you know, being true, being transparent, being truthful and sort of just, uh, you know, showing people what what your life's really like. So, final question, because I know i got to let you go. Um, you, you know, you were a big David Lee fan. Uh, you know, What's up with David Lee? He hasn't signed with anybody. Do you think David Lee's career is over? Or do you think that he's still got a chance to last? He played with, He played okay with the Spurs. He was pretty good last year. Um, Such a serendipitous question. You know what? <laughs> uh, I've, been, I've been working in uh, Union Square uh, recently. And I've actually seen David Lee twice in that. Uh, so, as we know, the third, the third time is a charm. So, if I run the uh, guest. Uh, I will ask him 
what's going on and get back to you. He seemed to be in great spirits uh, the both times I saw him. Um, he, he's a world champion, yes? Was he, was he with the Warriors? Yes, he has a ring. Okay, so he, he got that ring. <laughs> he, was, he was four years at Florida, right? Yeah. So, I mean, he's turned in a remarkable career. Um, I, I doubt this is it. Uh, he was always a really talented rebounder, uh, really talented mid-range shooter. I mean, there's a place always on, on some roster uh, for guys who, who know how to bang and who know how to play the game, and David Lee definitely fits that mold. Um, we could easily, you know, see him transitioning uh, into, you know, a player support role or even an assistant coach. Um, but again, man, the, the sky's the limit for David Lee, man. I know. I had to ask. I mean, the guy, like, what's going on? He should have gotten some kind of uh, camp invite, at least. I would say that I would want him to join the Knicks, but they have, like, 20 centers, so um, it's going to be really hard. But I do, I, I hope... You know, this isn't the end of the David Lee show in the NBA. Um, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the NBA Trace podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, thank you a lot for coming on. And uh, this is the NBA Trace podcast, people. Uh, you know, check it out. Thanks, Chris. This was another edition of the NBA Trades podcast. You can like the page on Facebook at NBA Trades. Follow us on Twitter, NBA underscore trades. You can also listen to the podcast on iTunes and also on Stitcher and Google Play. So thank you for listening and peace.